You're listening to In Your Face because life demands hard conversations. Watch on YouTube at I Am Tassian and stream on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Today's episode is intimately sacred. Relationships hold immense significance in shaping our identities. I had the incredible fortune of encountering Delroy and Nashimae Lindo during my childhood, and they showered me with genuine love, care, and treated me as their own. I hope to have Father D in your face on an episode when the time and topic align, but today's focus is on Nashimae. It's no secret that beside every strong man stands an equally strong woman, and Nashime not only fits, but surpasses this expectation. Interestingly, three of my show's guests spontaneously mentioned Nashime's impact. This prompted numerous inquiries asking, who is Nashime? Crossing paths with her in this lifetime has been an immense blessing, as my journey towards womanhood wouldn't be the same without her. Thus, today's episode is dedicated to showcasing Nashimae, the remarkable woman, artist, historian, wife, mentor, friend, mother, and down-to-earth Philly girl. So let's dive into the depths of who Nashimae truly is. All in your face style for the in your face family to witness her greatness. Here you go in episode seven, who is Nashimae? Yeah, well, I was born and raised in West Philly. And um, went to Harity Elementary School, which is where Dave and Lou and I met when we were in, I met Dave on the first day of kindergarten. It's September 11th, I'm not gonna say the year. Anybody who's got Google will probably Google it, but uh, I remember him from then and Lucretia in third grade. I don't remember Lou from before third grade. But, um, and then we switched schools, so, Dave and I went to a new school. And can I tell a story about mm-hmm. Dave? David's gonna kill me. <laughs> when Miss Johnson got sick, we got a substitute. And he was a young white guy. I don't know, he might have been fresh out of college. I don't really know. His name was Mr. Hughes. But he was so mean to us that we wouldn't say his name. We said his name was a curse word. Ooh. So we called him Mr. Hugheads. Oh. How the name is spelled. Yeah. And he would yell and scream at us. Um, he, um, when we went to recess, when we came back into the classroom, he had been smoking a cigar in the class, and you could smell it. Or you'd come in and you'd see him with his feet up on the desk reading. And we just thought it was so disrespectful to Miss Johnson. And um, one, I remember once I had been to some program or something, I came back and the class had, I guess, been acting out. And he had them writing, I will not talk in class a hundred times. And so I came and he says, sit down and read, write. I, I, have, I will not walk and write, uh, talk in class a hundred times. So I, I must have wrote it about five times. I said, wait a minute, I was not even here. I'm not doing it. I'm not gonna do it. He said, yes, you will. No, I'm not. I'm not gonna do it because I wasn't here and I'm not gonna write that. Plus it's stupid. How's that gonna stop me from talking if I write it a hundred times? A waste of paper. No. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he didn't like me. But, I, but the story I was gonna tell is that one day we were, going home, because we would go home for lunch every day. Mm. So we were coming back, we were going for lunch, and I was always the tallest in my class, and my last name was Wilkie. So I was always tall and at the back. My last name, W, W. right. 
I'm standing in the back of the class and I'm, we were lined up getting ready to go to lunch. And he was walking back and forth in front of us like a sergeant in the army or something with his hands behind his back. I don't remember what he was saying, but it was disrespectful and just distasteful. And Dave, whose name began with a C, and he was also, you know, guys were shorter back then, he's since grown, but he was at towards the front of the line. So as Mr. Hughes walked past him, Dave got out of line and was walking behind and making faces. <laughs> I cannot imagine that. <laughs> he was doing that. And the guy turned around and caught him. And when he caught him, he grabbed Dave by his shirt and lifted him off the floor. I'll never forget the look of terror in his face. So when I got home that afternoon at lunchtime, I, I, my dad was home at lunch and I told him, I said, Mr. Huggins called Dave Clark a punk. It was terrible. He grabbed him and lifted him by his shirt. My father said, he, he must be a fool. I'm going up there. So he came up to the school. Jerry Seibert, Kevin Seibert's mother came in, Aurelia Blake's mother came. So they must have also told their parents. And my dad was actually going up to the classroom to confront the guy and the principal intercepted him. But he was gone after that. Um, but then Lou and I got to be very close friends. Um, and we went to Shaw Junior High. I think Dave may have gone to Shaw as well. And then we went to Girls High. So we went to school together every single morning. Wow. Now what I'll say about Girls High is that, yes, Jill Scott did go to Girls High, but a whole lot of other amazing women went to that school. Barbara Chase Rubeau went there. Mary Schmidt Campbell went there. B.B. Moore Campbell went there. Um, just a lot of different people. So it was, a, I think, empowering for us as women um, partly because everybody was smart. You had to be smart to get there. Um, and the, we didn't have the competition with the guys in classrooms. So it was more competition among, among women. Mm. And I think that was good for us. I mean, girls came from all over the city. So even though I came from West Philly, I met sisters from North Philly, from Mount Airy, from Germantown, from South Philly. Um, I met Italian women and Jewish women, and uh, we, some of us really became friends and became lifelong friends. Um, in fact, when I was in Philly a few months ago, Mary Dianella and I had uh, dinner together, and Mary and I used to sit together in geometry class and talk much SHI, you know what. And she's still the same person. <laughs> she's still the same person. And I love her dearly. I mean, I really do. So um, that experience, I think, really prepared me um, not just for college, because it was a college prep school, um, but also for the larger world and how women interact with one another and how we can either build each other up Okay. Or we can tear each other down. Um, I ended up going to Penn State University, uh, where I majored in art. I majored in art at Girls High as well. And uh, Penn State was a um, very challenging experience for me. However, a whole lot of sisters from Girls High ended up at Penn State, including my cousin. I had two or three cousins there. And so there was a support system in that regard. But because I was an art major, 
I was often by myself. Mm -hmm. I was often in classrooms and in spaces where I was the only African-American and sometimes the only woman. Um, and that was very challenging. Um, there was a lot of racism there. I encountered it from teachers, administrators, and students. However, um, there was one other sister who was in the art department, Nancy Nickens. I'm gonna call Nick out because after the first couple of years, we didn't have any classes together, but we bonded over the arts, over being African-American, over our political and cultural beliefs, our spiritual beliefs, and that was kind of what got me through um, to graduate um, from Penn State. And I, I think um, after I left Penn State, one of the things I found was that I, I was searching for a reason to be an artist, a reason that's other than the fact that I loved art. I loved making art. I had always drawn and made pictures. Um, my dad was an industrial paper maker. And so that's, that's what he did for his job. And he would bring paper and stuff home for me, all kinds of paper. They recycled at that time because they were making container boxes. And so they recycled books, they recycled um, good paper, bad paper, things that people had made into decorative things. Um, partly because um, I had drawn on the wall. <laughs> <laughs> My mother had just gotten the house papered. This is when people papered their, home, their homes. That's back in style now, doing wallpapering. Oh, wow. But in those days, this is before people painted everything. Everything was papered. It was so nice. And I drew stars all the way up the steps. And so uh, <laughs> they said, we got to do something about this girl. So he would bring paper home for me. Um, a lot of times it would be really good stuff that was being recycled because it was damaged on the end or whatever. And they also gave me a little room in the house that... Um, we used to call it the middle room. It was a little room, and because it was little and it was in the middle, and nobody slept in there at the time, um, so they let me draw on the walls in that room. You know, I have a classroom with Abdel Carusa and Sven and all these people from different countries. You know, um, Abiko and uh, Jose and Maria. You know, I had this whole international class that I drew on the wall, and then I would teach them. And then I had another little section with my TV that I drew on the wall. And, you know, I made these little like vignettes. Um, and that was what I did for to entertain myself. I, I was always very um, self-entertaining. I'm one of these people that I, I just, I don't know what it is to be bored because I can always find something to do if I'm not reading, I'm not drawing, you know. So that was kind of my background and um, so going, becoming an artist was natural for me. When somebody asked me, what are you going to major in? I thought, well, art, you know, I, I can't think of anything else. Uh, my dad was an artist, but he sang. Mm. And his outlet was the church choir. So he worked six days a week, swing shift at this plant, Crown Paper Board Company. But on Thursdays, he went to choir rehearsal. And on Sundays, he sang on the choir. And he sang in recitals, and he, he would get solo performances and things like that. I sang on the church choir. 
So music was also a part of my life. I played in the band. In fact, Lucretia and I both were in the orchestra at Shaw Junior High. She played the flute, I played violin. Um, so art was a part of it, but I never thought, you know, when I grow up, I want to be a concert violinist, or I want to be a singer, or I want to be, I didn't think about any of it. I really just didn't. like I'm enjoying the art. I was just creating. Right. And um, I would say that the, to, to the detriment of the programs, nobody ever talked to me about career. Mm. But they also didn't talk to me about internships or fellowships. I mean, that mm. kind of thing was never discussed with me at Penn State or at Rose High. That's interesting you say, like, the detriment. I would say it actually was like a blessing because you got to just flourish in, like, what you love. On one end, it was a blessing that we were taught the internships, the fellowships, and was exposed to so many different opportunities so we can see what potentially we can go into, the various pathways. But it also became very, in my mind, it became very limiting for me, and it actually kind of like like held me um, captive creatively because I was like I was seeing all these different paths, but none of them fit what I visualized myself in. I was like, I don't want to do this. If I if I thought about the one career path I would have chosen, would have been to be a teacher. And whenever someone says, "Who was your favorite teacher?" I always think of Mrs. Hall. She was stern. Uh, I don't remember her smiling very much, mm. but she taught us French, she taught us geography, she taught, she taught in her classroom so many things and she demanded your excellence. Where am I, how do I fit into this? I mean, I, I'm an art major, but I don't even know any black artists, not really. I mean, I've, I've heard of Picasso and Dali and those people, but where are there any black women artists? Um, and nobody could tell me, and they did not teach it at the school. I had one teacher, um, actually two art teachers who were very supportive. They were they did not you know attack me <laughs> when I came into class. Um, Dr. Griffith was the one who actually kind of steered me towards some information about African American artists. Um, Opportunity Magazine which was a, 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 a journal that was published by the um, Urban League in like the 20s during the Harlem, what they call the Harlem Renaissance. I, I prefer the New Negro Movement. Um, and he said, I want you to go through that magazine and find every article there is about an artist or a writer. So there was Langston and Zora and you know, all, all those people were in that magazine in Penn State happened to have an entire collection wow. of Opportunity Magazine. Wow. At the time, I had no, no idea, idea. What, what the import of that was, but he turned me on to it. And so I knew there was some hope. Um, I went home one year, because I, I found in a book, in a library, uh, painting by Henry O. Tanner, um, The Annunciation by Tam Tanner. And it turns out the painting was in the collection of the Philadelphia Museum of Art. So I said, oh, wow, I mean, I want to go see it. So I, when I went home for break, I went to the museum, and I went up to one of the guards, and I said, I'm looking for the, the Henry O. Tanner. So he said, um, is he Dutch? I said, no. <laughs> his name is O. It's his, it's his middle initial, <laughs> Tanner. 
So he went, you know, God bless him, he's a, a black museum guard. And he went and he inquired and he came back. He said, that painting is in storage. And I was shocked because I didn't know that museums put stuff in storage at the time. And so this painting by this black artist that I wanted to see and hear about, I couldn't look at it. And, you know, it just kind of further frustrated me, but at least I knew he existed. And then I found out that he was AME, and I grew up in the AME church. Um, you know, I grew up at Mother Bethel AME church, and that exposure um, really ignited my interest in history. Um, you are such a historian. I love how you always connect the dots. Well, because I love research. With the people, yes. I, I love it. And, and I have to say Harvey Wilson, because, and Thomas C. Haywood, but especially Harvey Wilson, because Mr. Wilson probably was, I don't know how old he was when he died, but he was almost 100. And he would seek us out after church on Sundays to tell us about the history of Richard Allen and Sarah Allen and the AME Church. And we would do things like we try to hide from, because, oh, God, here he comes and tell us. We want to go to Levis's and get a hot dog and a cherry, a champ cherry Coke, you know. Um, we don't want to listen to him. But I kind of liked it, because he would find us. I don't care how, which way we went. He knew his way around that church. He would always show up. He said, okay, let me show you this room right here. This is where the Underground Railroad was. And we were like, underground real you mean the broad street subway because you know that was my relationship in my head to an underground railroad because we weren't learning this stuff in school mm -hmm. and as much as during those days when you were a child um, in school you went on class trips our class trips were generally independence hall first continental congress alfred's alley betsy ross's house benjamin franklin's grave Christ Church, and I would always be like, you know, um, our church is right up the street from here. Mm. It's like maybe two blocks. So when we come here and we listen to all this stuff, how come we never go to that yeah, place, to Mother Bethel? And so my teacher said, well, there were no black people here in the 1700s. So, but there's a um, picture in my church, and there's a man buried in the basement, and the dates say 1760 to 18 something, because Mr. Wilson had mm -hmm. shown it to us. She didn't believe me. So I, immediately, it, it sparked my interest in finding out more about black history. And I think that was connected to my interest in black artists and the history of African-American artists, particularly since that's what I wanted to do at some point in my life. Um, I was actually working at the Schomburg Center. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was working at the Baltimore Museum of Art when I met Delroy. And I had been there for about four or five years. We met and um, I just got ready to leave. I was ready, to, I think I hit my stride there as much as I was gonna do. So we decided to move together to New York and I worked at the Schomburg Center four or five years. Um, and he decided, you know, and I think his agents and they were like, you, you need to be in California. We were here for, I don't know, 10 years before Demiri came along.
And we went to Park Chapel that first Sunday. And I'm going to say it, but <laughs> there was a woman there. I mean, it was fine. I mean, it was yeah. actually fine. I didn't know anybody. You know, I know the liturgy for the AME mm -hmm. Church because I grew up in, you know, so it was familiar to me in that regard. But this woman, she said, have you been to First AME? So we said, no, we saw it up on Telegraph. So she said, girl, if you go there, you ain't coming back here. <laughs> so we were like, oh, okay, so maybe we should go check it out with no criticism of it at all. I mean, yes. She said that to us. Right. So we went over to First Sandy the following Sunday, and um, we came into church and kind of snuck into the back. Hey! Um, mm -hmm. You don't think it's... <laughs> we um, we uh, snuck into the back and sat down, you know, we thought quietly, and Reverend Mayberry... Did not be quiet with Reverend. You know he don't know how to... <laughs> well, it was it was like during the time where everybody was greeting the visitors and, you know, everybody was doing a reading. So we kind of like, okay. But you know he's So he sure. got up to the podium. He said, Delroy Lindo, stand I'm, up. I was about to say, you know he does not know how to. <laughs> it was so funny because Delroy looked like a deer caught in the But that Sunday, Mark Tyler was the guest speaker. From, and he's at Mother Bethlehem. He's at Mother Bethlehem. Yeah. At the time, he had was not at Mother Bethlehem. He was at Brickens. I don't know where he was, okay. but he was here in as America. a guest yeah. speaker. And after church, we went back into Reverend Mayberry's office and sat and chatted with him. And it turned out that Mark Tyler and I had some friends in common from Baltimore, which oh, wow. was uh, Bishop John and Cecilia Bryant and Jamal and Tama. So we were like, oh, wow, we know these people in common, blah, 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 we talked. And um, so then we started to go to First AME, and even my dad came when he got better. Um, he went there. He was he really loved your Uncle Paul. Oh. He loved him He because uh, he just took him under his wing. And that's how I met you was through my Uncle Paul. Mm -hmm. I actually don't... You know how I remember was I don't re, I don't remember. I just remember Reverend Mayberry one Sunday was like because I was doing poetry some time mm -hmm. for the church and I never forget it was one that he was like you got your future Academy Award winner he's like Academy Award winner and standing next to your future Academy Award winner and I didn't know what Academy Award was at the time mm -hmm. but I was just like I'm not an actor and I'm not trying to be an actor. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I hear you, and I just hear excellence over excellence. Okay, I'm going to receive that message mm -hmm. beyond the Academy Award. Let Delroy get the Academy Award because I don't. But no, I do. that. I mean, that's how we got connected, and that's how I got to get my chocolate nugget. Oh, yeah, because you, you, we were so impressed with your poetry. Um, you know, in my other life, I used to do poetry readings in Philly and Baltimore. You know, every Monday night we'd go down to the Indy Foxhole and we'd read poetry and write poetry or what have you. And um, so I was very impressed with your writing. Um, Which, you know, started because of like, when you were talking about black teachers, mine started one because of, um, which I've said at my show lecture, because of Stephanie Floyd Johnson connected me to Dr. Maya, Dr. Maya mm -hmm. that initial interaction. Then my third grade teacher, Miss um, Faye Alexander at Martin Luther King Elementary School, 
had us do the Martin Luther King oratorical fest. Oh, yes. And she had us do Phenomenal Woman. Mm-hmm. It was four of us. And we did that. And we won, like, first place. And they had us performing all over the district. And we just, they were so impressed. But she was a stickler. She was mm-hmm. like, you're going to perform this. You're going to do it with excellence. Mm-hmm. And I would never forget her. She was one of the most impactful women, black women teachers that I had at a young age. Mm-hmm. Went to middle school at Claremont, it was my seventh grade teacher, Mr. Askia Igashira, who really got me into my personal writing. Ninth grade English teacher, who was in my that episode with Lynette, where you came up, mm-hmm. Mr. Tamim West, who was like super, super impactful. And I actually hated him because he was such a stickler. He was such, he was so hardcore. It was advanced English, but he really got me into etymology. And understanding words, words and the meaning, and the, meaning and the history and where they the the, um, the root the root of them mm-hmm. and yeah but that when you were talking about it it made me think about all those black teachers that I had in my life and mm-hmm. how they just had such an impact and even Kava mm-hmm. my teacher even in my show last year like yeah. she's still one of my best friends to this day mm-hmm. but she just had such a profound mm-hmm. impact on my life. Well, speaking of teachers and educators who encouraged you because you know we just want to be seen yeah. I mean I mean I think that that's the beginning children need love and, and you want to be seen and one of the first people that I can recall telling me that I could write was a gentleman by the name of Marcus Foster mm-hmm. and he actually ran like a summer school program the summer before I went to girls high I don't know how I ended up there. I don't know, maybe my mother signed me up. I, you know, I didn't apply. But I remember we had some kind of assignment and I got called to the principal's office. And I thought I had done something. Mm-hmm. And it was Mr. Foster. And he said, have a seat, young lady. He said, I'm reading this thing and I don't even remember what it was. He said, you can write. Wow. You can write. You're a good writer. Always remember that. And I don't remember anything else from that encounter except that Marcus Foster told me that. And years later, I heard, I think I might have been at Penn State, or maybe I was in high school, that he had come to Oakland and was the supervisor of schools here. And then I heard that he had been killed. Mm-hmm. And that was like mind-boggling to me. And so I, I think that, and I think everybody really needs to be able to express themselves, whether they write or talk or whatever it is. It's in, inherent upon us. I I 100% agree. When I think about my teachers and how like all of them were so profound because of that connection to the art and that arts connection, which is why and I think you've talked about it a lot in our personal conversations, how like STEM is great, but how you have to add STEAM because that A is so important. Because I know like when I see things or I, like we were talking earlier about another project I'm doing and when things are so rigid, I usually can't connect to it or it's really hard for me to get into it because I, I it just doesn't work for my mind. I have to feel that creative mm-hmm. flow for me to really engage and connect. Absolutely. Um, and that is that artistic side of me. I never was really good in math because math is so robotic and I have to be able to find my own sense of style and what I do. I, I have such a problem with, you know, I hear people say, you know, we want black women in STEM. 
you're thinking, well, you know, why would you shortchange these young people by leaving the arts out of the idea of learning and teaching and practicing science, technology, engineering, art, and math? Because for some people, myself included, the arts made all those other things that much more palatable yes. and understandable for yes. me. And not to mention the fact that in order to be successful in any of those, quote, STEM fields, you need to have a creative mind. Yep. You need to be innovative. You need to think outside the box. You need to know how to work with other people and how to express yourself. So why do they keep leaving the arts out? I've been having this fight about STEAM versus STEM since... You know, they started talking about STEM. And I remember there was a young lady, and I wish I could remember her name, but um, we were at a, uh, uh, a block party that Yo-Yo Ma organized here in Oakland several years ago. I was with the Arts Council at the time. And this little girl got up in this, it was like a town hall meeting after the block party. And she said, STEAM puts the heat under STEM. That and part. I said, that part. <laughs> Come on, baby. Tell it. Yes. Because without the arts, without the idea of being creative, without innovation, none of it really matters. And one of the things that I've done over the years is trying to find all the ways that I could prove that this is just the case. For example, Albert Einstein, and almost everybody knows who Albert Einstein mm -hmm. was, said, if it hadn't been for my violin, the theory of relativity would never have come up. That part. Um, or the fact that over 90% of our Nobel, Nobel Prize laureates in physics are also practicing artists. Right. Why is it that there's such a resistance? And a lot of kids will mentally check out because they're like, I don't want to do coding. I don't want to do that. My mind doesn't work like that. Mm. That's just not the path that I want to follow. Um, but if you incorporate that artistic side and how that relates to the science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, and it's like, okay, you're an artist. We use that as a part of our data analytics. We need that monitor. We need your artistic views to put this together, like how it all connects and iterates and intertwines, it is such an integral part. And so I agree 100% as a student of the art. You know, I learned about um, art and African-American artists because I sought them out. And I, I didn't take a class because the classes didn't exist. Didn't they do now. But then they didn't. So my, my information is word of mouth from the horse's mouth. I would look for artists, go to their studios, talk to them, join African-American arts organizations like the National Conference of Artists. Um, and I worked in the museums because I, I found that working in the classroom for me personally was too constricting um, because of the requirements of the bureaucracy mm -hmm. um, and the curriculum demands. You know, you got 45 minutes to teach, then I got to switch to this. And, you know, maybe we're not finished teaching this. Maybe right. everybody doesn't get it, but I got to switch over because, and I said, I, that doesn't work for me. And I found that museum education was my hook because I can teach from objects. I can teach color theory. I can teach composition. 
I can talk about history. I can talk about biography, mm-hmm. um, politics, all, whatever the artist is expressing. I can use that as a as a catalyst for teaching. And I found that that was my niche. Then I ended up at the Schomburg Center when I was really in my world. Because not only did we have an art collection there, we also talked about black history. Mm-hmm. And Arthur Schomburg, who's my hero, was a race man. And his story reminded me of what happens to a lot of our young black people. He was a little boy in school. The teacher said, okay, everybody write an essay about the history of your family. And he was probably one of one or two black children in his class. He was Puerto Rican of African descent by his definition. And he said, the teacher looked at him and said, but you don't have anything to write. Because your people have no history, they have no heroes, they have no great moments. Mm. Sounds like my man who's running for Richard. Right. I ain't going to say his name. But he said, okay, really? So he spent the rest of his life gathering the evidence wow. to prove that teacher wrong by collecting objects, materials, books, prints, photographs, letters that was the material that he could back his argument up with. By 1926, he collected over 10,000 objects. And in 1926, he sold it to the New York Public Library. And that became the Schomburg Center, Mm. a place where you could go and find this evidence. Um, That collection has grown to millions now. But being at the Schomburg Center, with all these primary resource documents and objects was just heaven for me. So all of these things impacted me and gave me kind of the ammunition. You're listening to In Your Face because life demands hard conversations. Watch on YouTube at I Am Tassian and stream on Apple and Spotify podcasts.